Welcome to Dramatic Pause, being recorded on the ancestral and unceded territory of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish nations at the Firehall Arts Centre in what is now downtown Vancouver. My name is Donna Spencer, artistic producer at the Firehall, and I'm the host for today's podcast. Dramatic Pause launched in the third month of the COVID-19 pandemic. The closure of live performing arts centres in British Columbia, across Canada and around the world overwhelmingly affected live performances, shutting down theatres and creating unemployment for countless numbers of artists, creative workers, arts administrators and production staffs. At the Fire Hall, we have now begun producing performances for very limited audiences, but the industry has been impacted greatly and will take a long time to recover. This shutdown has affected the economy greatly also but has had huge impact on the emotional health of audience members and lovers of live performance. And so at the Fire Hall, we are trying to stay in touch with this podcast and with many audience live performances. Coming up next is our premiere production in partnership with a search party of the Amaryllis written by Michelle Rimmel, who is our guest today on Dramatic Pause. Welcome, Michelle, and thanks for joining us in the midst of production. Thanks for having me. How is it going? It's going really well. It's wonderful to be in the theater and in a rehearsal hall. What have you been doing since COVID hit? I mean, have you been just craving to go out to performance or hiding at home writing? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was hiding at home for a while, and uh, but not writing, cooking more than writing for sure. I, um, I actually, when COVID hit, I was in Europe and I was in Poland seeing a play of mine that had been translated Henry and Alice into the Wild, as well as the production of Sexy Laundry in the Czech Republic. So I was meant to be in Europe for three months. I was going there to work and to um, uh, see my show and meet people. And then my son was meant to come to Belgium and start cooking because he's a young chef and he was going to stage in a restaurant. So my whole family had a plan of being over there. Anyways, I stayed in Europe. I managed to be there for nine days, saw the play, met with people, and on the ninth day, I heard this rumor that Poland was going to shut down because of the pandemic, and it literally shut down in two days, and I had to get a what they called an emergency tourist flight out to London, where I stayed with a friend, and then our prime minister was saying, Canadians, come home. So I did. <laughs> and did the did the uh, did the, the production actually launch? Did it actually start and run for a while, or did yes. it run until the end of the run, or what yeah. happened there? Well, that that's a unique story because I have two plays on in Poland and the Czech Republic and in Eastern Europe, Sexy Laundry and Henry and Alice, that have been running um, for five years. Wow! Yeah, so it's been fantastic, <laughs> and I actually went. A few years ago to see Sexy Laundry in Polish, and it truly was one of the best productions I've seen. They have a real history and culture of theatre um, in Poland, in Eastern Europe, and it was just great and very eye-opening as to what they could do with the play in translation. Um, so I wanted to go back when they did the sequel, and they were interested in some of my other work, so that was the plan. How is What is Sexy Laundry in Polish? I don't know. Actually, that's a very good question. I have the poster at home, and it's it's something like this, but I'm going to mangle it. It's Sex de la Opportunic, but it probably sounds different in Polish, yeah. but that's yeah. what it looks like if I so- sound it out. Um, but in the translation, it probably means exactly the same thing, right? It's something like that, because one of the things, it's difficult to translate sexy laundry. It's been translated into nine languages, and 
Like I know in Icelandic, it's the marriage bed, they decided to call it because sexy laundry didn't mean anything to them. It's really a reference to something that happens in the play that makes it mean something. So they take some creative license in translation, I think, too. <laughs> well, I'm sure they do, because yeah. you know, we all uh, perhaps presume that if you translate a word from English to French or oh, to yeah. Polish, that it actually is exact translation, but it never is because of euphemisms. and Absolutely. And I, I, in this process of having some of my work translated, I've really learned about the art of translation. And the, it, it's very important to get a good translator. And I've been lucky in those countries to have good translators. Um, women, actually older women who've been doing it for years. And one of them had translated some of Tom Stoppard's work. And when I was in the theater um, in Warsaw the first time, I was told this story because they, it, they're allowed to change up to 10 to 20 percent of the actual script, the translator and the dramaturg working together. Whereas I think in Canada and the U.S. we have much more stringent, like it's got to be word for word, talk to the playwright. Anyways, they were telling me this story that um, Tom Stopper came to see a show and just before the lights went down, the director turned to him and said, don't worry, we fixed the ending. <laughs> It's a fabulous story. Yeah. It's a very fabulous story. I, I can't imagine what Tom Stoppard would have said. I don't but... know. But I do know that I've watched my show in different places and gone, I think there's a monologue here. And, you know, and you're not quite sure like what they've done. And Alice took up smoking in, in Poland, which she doesn't do in the play in Vancouver and stuff. But... Uh, I don't know. It's all well, part of the art of it. Of course, smoking in Vancouver might not be seen to be culturally appropriate, exactly. but I don't think that's come into play no, in a lot of European centers. No, you can still smoke centers. in the bathroom in, in Poland and not have the police arrive. <laughs> how, yeah. did, um, how did that all come about? I mean, this is amazing that yeah. you've had these shows running for five years. Yeah, I yeah, mean, was great. that just a connection that your agent found for you or uh, people heard about actually, these amazing plays? It, what was great with uh, Sexy Laundry, which which has been kind of an anomaly. It's been really popular and been going for a while. But but it was published um, and on Amazon and a trans a Czech translator found it and read it and she really liked it and passed it on to her Polish friend who was a translator and they got in contact with my agent and he actually already had a couple of connections with some theaters there but but was just kind of starting that connection and um, yeah they translated it and it just it just took off in Poland so at one point it, it's still being produced not now during the pandemic but at one point it was on consecutive concurrently in five different I'm not sure if that's the right word you might have to correct me concurrently um, in five different cities in Poland. So they had five casts doing the play. I think it just hit a real nerve there. It's a universal theme. I mean, marriage, yeah. partnership, arguing with your long-term partner. They do it in every country and every they language. They do, which just yeah. goes to show that, you know, it's kind of like the global communication system. Some people feel, you know, totally overwhelmed by them. Yeah. But the actual fact that we were able to communicate across the globe has actually a binding effect. It might also have a dividing Absolutely. effect yeah. as well yeah but the fact that someone there can connect to the universality universality of your play and go okay let's do it yeah would never have been possible 20 years ago no and that's exactly right and even if you think about the way they discover the work now like finding something online or watching a video or you know they buy it on amazon which is everywhere and read it like i just think there's a lot more opportunity for exposure which is great now how do you um how do you feel or uh, what's your 
take on streamed theater now? Because we're being pushed into that yeah. place of with the pandemic. Uh, a way to reach out to our audiences is through live streaming or recorded streaming. Yeah. And it's such a different art form than mm. actually live theater. Mm. I, I, I guess I have conflicting feelings about it. I feel on one level it's, it's not a bad stopgap measure like to stay connected to audiences, to be able to have some theater out there. And if they want to watch it live stream, that's, that's great. I, I guess what I love about theater is the community of it. The bringing, I believe that the audience is actually part of the play and it's the living, breathing, going through the experience together that is so unique. And even before, you know, all of this pandemic, one of the reasons I've always worked in theater and never even pursued television or film is because I have a deep abiding love and faith in that experience, right? Which is for us all to come together, do the show. It only happens once that night and then it's different the next night. I love that. Um, that said, I've watched a couple... I watched a couple of things out of New York early on that were, uh, I think one was about the Apple family and it was the play was designed for the characters to actually be on Zoom. So that made sense to me because the, the characters were interacting through Zoom. So we were also having the experience that, that they were having. I feel less successful or trying to do big plays and set up a steady camera. You just don't get the, the, the full experience. Yeah, I think you actually really have to uh go kind of between the, the the live theater and film i mean you have to have more than one camera yeah you have to have at least five yeah. cameras and yeah. you need a stage a floor director yeah. or you need to be able to edit it so it looks it almost becomes filmic but it's not really yeah and then it can be more i think that is probably more successful that's also an expense though too for the theater and if you're thinking about trying to keep theater alive in this time when there's no revenue from audiences that's a pretty big investment for a small theater right it's a huge investment yeah. and i also think that um because so many things are streamed online yeah. um and you can access just about anything at no cost people aren't prepared to pay the same amount to watch something online unless it's a huge huge concert or a huge mega musical yeah uh, our famous actors yeah. doing like they've done yeah. at the old vic in london i think they had you know the claire foy from yeah. the queen did her show so i think that's sold out so to speak <laughs> however that works well, i think it kind of would wouldn't yeah, it? yeah exactly <laughs> she's pretty amazing well in any time yeah. it would sell out yeah. right not just during a the pandemic, pandemic. So. Are they doing streaming? And do you know if they're doing streaming in Poland and in, in the, the Czech I was, Republic? Well, I don't know about Ch Poland or the Czech Republic, but I was asked. Uh, they have a production of Sexy Laundry on in Slovenia, and they asked if they could stream it, and we said yes. My feeling is anything we can do to support the theater and the actors that are, you know, not working there because these actors in Eastern Europe anyway, they do things in rep. So they'll have five plays in their head that I can't, like the guy that played Henry in, in Sexy Laundry was the next night going to be in Death of a Salesman. I believe, I think, that at one point you were investigating becoming an actor. So let's just roll back a bit <laughs> and talk about how you ended up being a playwright. I mean, what was your first kind of uh, light going on in your head that you had to get involved in this amazing profession yeah. that we're in? Yeah, well... I don't know like if it was a plan in the sense of going to see a career counselor and them saying like here playwright that's a good there's a good way to make a living but um, from an early age I always love I always loved to read I loved stories I loved movies I loved theater that if I had an opportunity to see theater um, I loved it so it was something that I was drawn to in terms of an art form um, 
And when I was in high school, I, I was, you know, studied drama and we had a great music theater program and stuff. And so that was what really kept me on track in school and interested in school. I had a unique experience that happened, um, which was that when I was, my dad got sick with cancer when I was 15 and he died when I was 16. And I went through a period of, you know, just being a kid that I just felt kind of aimless and I wasn't really going to school much and cutting classes but I was still going to my drama class and there was a a smart drama teacher who assigned us this assignment to write this a short play and um, I wrote mine and it was a little bit about my dad and and he entered it into the BC Young Playwright search and I won that contest and the prize of the contest was to have a professional director and actors do it at the Waterfront Theatre at Granville Island as part of a kind of a showcase, right? So I had this experience of going there, watching the rehearsals, and seeing them bring together this, or, you know, put on this this moment that was so personal to me and creating it and making it into something that the audience related to. And it just really showed me the power of theatre also on a personal level that you can take something and transform it and then connect with your fellow human on these kind of um, deep levels. I, you know, I, moving forward as a writer, I don't, I think you need to have space and distance from things that happen in your life before you write about them, because otherwise it can be like therapy or writing in a journal as opposed to creating a piece of art. But I certainly think at 16 years old, that was a very formative, you know, moment for me. And did you feel like you were part of a new family or that you were welcomed into this this collegiality that yeah. we all experience in the theater that's a, a, a totally different from our, our own families? Yeah. Well, I think that's a great way to put it because I actually had an acting teacher later in university who did this little pre-show speech and he said this thing. He said, you know, in the theater, we're all emotional orphans. <laughs> we <laughs> We come together as a family, right? And I did feel that, and I did feel like I was part of something. Also, probably at that age, like, I was a little bit on the outside looking in, and I wanted to be a part of something. So I decided, I was actually very interested in philosophy and psychology when I went to university and started studying that, but I gravitated towards the acting class, and I was encouraged to try out for the acting program at Simon Fraser and I did and was accepted and so I actually ended up studying um, acting fine and performing arts at uh, Simon Fraser I really like acting but I don't think I had I don't for one I don't think I had the ambition I I think it takes some real like tenacity to be an actor make a living being an actor Um, and there's just something about my personality like I think it's the I think it's also the love of psychology and trying to understand what makes people tick and the way I am in the world. I like to be by myself and walk around and think about things. I think I'm more the writer than the actor. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, actors are such incredibly brave people. They I, truly I, I, are. I, I mean, certainly in terms of uh, my career, I have done some acting, but I just am always in awe of their bravery and their ability to go with the flow and create moments that are so brilliant that you never expect when you see writing. Sometimes you'll read it and you may be able to envisage what the play would be like, but they're the ones that truly are the, the uh, they sort of 
cook the batter, if you will. Yeah. They really do make it work. Well, they make it three-dimensional. Yeah. It just lives as this flat piece of paper with some writing on it and stuff, and you see it or feel it, but it's the actor that brings it alive. And I was saying the other day, um, I gave the actor, Amy, here a sweater of mine because she was here in the summer and she didn't have a lot of warm clothes for the winter. And uh, so she's wearing this red sweater in rehearsal, which is this sweater that I probably wore when I was writing the Amaryllis. And we were saying there's this magical feeling. I feel like I literally like was in that sweater writing the character of Lucy. And now Amy's wearing that red sweater being the character of Lucy. And it's like something has been conjured, right? It's got a, it's, it's quite neat. It's like sort of this magical feeling. And there is a feeling of that when you write a character and then you watch an actor inhabit it. And for the writer, it's like, it, for me, it's like it goes from being mine to being theirs. And then it's kind of like ours when we give it to the audience. But it's not just one thing. It's not just the character that exists on the page. You know, it's what that actor brings to it. And I love that about theater. So you took your step from this play that you did when you were 17. Mm-hmm. You went into at the SFU. You did your training as mm-hmm. an actor. And were you writing during that time period? Uh, not, not too much. I took a player. I think I got my worst mark in playwriting, playmaking. And I think it's probably because I went to the pub too much, like not because of anything (laughs) I I didn't do. I don't think I got up for the class. (laughs) Um, but I remember, um, and then I got involved. They had like a little black box there, like a, a studio. And I got involved with creating some theater and directing some theater for that. And, um, a little bit of writing there. I, remember distinctly I think I had just graduated from SFU and I went to see a fringe show with a friend of mine um, Andrew McElroy who ultimately I worked with a lot but um, we were coming back uh, from the show and I, I said something kind of flip like oh, I could do better than that right you know how we all like to be the critic but we're watching the show and he and he I really remember this he literally turned to me and said well then why don't you like why don't you write a play? Like, if you think you can write a play, because I think I'd been going on about, you know, what am I supposed to do with my life and whatever you do at 23 or 24 years old. And um, so I, I thought I will, I'll try. And I had this little studio apartment down on Harrow Street. Um, Lots of actors live in that building still. And I remember I had like these cinder blocks and a, a board and I put like four cinder blocks and I put my board across the cinder blocks and then I had this old giant heavy computer that I put on there and I I I can still feel myself sitting there looking at the screen going like how do you how do you write a play like how do you even like set the tabs like how does this work so you were worried (laughs) you were worried about the format did you know what you were going to write about I did I did it's funny like um uh you're your, the the proper format for a play. I mean, there is a proper format, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Um, but the other side of it is, do you write it for the format or do you just write it first and then format? I absolutely will tell you this. And to any young writer listening, don't worry about the format. <laughs> Make sure you have something to write about. I find it's still a way for me to procrastinate about writing is to start thinking, oh, I should use a different program or I should try a different font. <laughs> like you can do that for years if you want to. <laughs> So yes, I did know, and again, I drew from a personal experience, which is kind of a funny one, which this play that I wrote was called Miss Teen. I don't know if you've heard Uh, of it. Yes, I remember that play, actually. Yeah. So when I was 15 years old, um, I 
wanted to take singing lessons and my mom took me to this singing teacher because I, you know, I was interested in drama and music theater and all that and I fancied myself a singer and one of the things she said, oh, yeah, she has a lovely voice but she's kind of shy and she needs like more presence or something and we can work on the singing but she suggested my mom enter me in the Miss Teen Vancouver pageant which was at Park Royal Mall. That's where they had all the <laughs> pageants. So I was the last and late entry and by some strange fluke, I ended up winning that contest. So I became Miss Teen Vancouver. And I didn't really know what that meant until I was literally like on a float with my crown and banner waving in the Sea Festival Parade. So I don't think I was a great Miss Teen Vancouver because I also around that time, 15, 16, discovered partying. My dad was sick. It was a very crazy time in my life. So. Fast forward to my, my first attempt at really writing a play. I mean, I had souvenirs, which was a small thing I did for that contest. I focused on Miss Teen and the juxtaposition of, you know, being kind of in the limelight and also the idea that women try to put on a face sometimes, a face of like, I'm okay, I'm fine, everything's good. And I had that backdrop of my father being sick and my mom losing her husband and you know, all of that. And I poured that out onto the page. And I had my friend Andrew, who lived downstairs, reading it. And he um, he was going to direct it for the Fringe. And we got our, we paid for a spot. And that was the, uh, that was the first play. So, yeah. Well, Andrew McElroy is a tremendous director. He's yes, also, he, is. he I don't know if he does any acting anymore. Yeah. He's become a a, a, a world-renowned coach, actually. Yeah, he truly has, like, he, he really is a world-renowned coach. He's worked on some very big movies in town, but he's a fabulous acting teacher. He's teaching on Zoom, as we speak, probably. Um, he really cares about his students. And like I said, he was my acting teacher. We, we became friends after I graduated, and he's directed four of my plays. But he was also really a mentor, and he was that person or he still is. He's the godfather of my son. He's one, one of my closest friends. So we have a great relationship. But um, he was that person, and I think everybody needs this person when you're starting, where I would give him pages or something, and he would say, keep going. Or, or see that thing that you're playing with, you can take that further. Because, you know, you're kind of alone doing it, and it's like, is this possible? And it was great to have somebody go, yeah, it's possible. It's like, but then how do we move them across the stage or how do we make that happen? He's oh, don't worry about it. We'll figure it out <laughs> in rehearsal, which we did. And I still to this day, I write transitions where Andrew gets them and he'll always help me figure out something. But sometimes I'll talk to another director and they'll be like, how do we do this? Well, even with the Amaryllis, it's like, how do we make this bloom? And it's like, oh, it's the magic of theater and you got to figure that out. <laughs> That's what I see. Why? Uh, well, since we've gone over towards the Amaryllis, let's yeah. talk about that a bit. Sure. I mean, first of all, we have two great actors we in really it: Sean do. McDonald and Amy Rutherford. I can't imagine. Uh, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing the run through. Um, so there's that, and Mindy Parfit is the director and a wonderful design team. Yes. But how did you get to the Amaryllis? I mean, what is it that and this may take us back a bit, but mm -hmm. what is it that makes you or helps you choose what you're going to write about next? I mean, is it something that you wake up in the middle of the night for yeah. or you're writing notes or whatever? Yeah. People always ask me this question. Why, why do people choose to write about certain things? Yeah, that's and a good... So you have to ask them. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> question. And I mean, yeah, 
in, in, a, in a strange way, I don't think you'll think it's strange, but others might. It's like, it kind of chooses me. I feel like when I wrote Sexy Laundry, which is about a, a couple, you know, in their 50s or having problems in their marriage, you know, and I was in my 30s when I wrote it, married, mind you, probably I had had a fight with my husband or something. And I, but I do remember walking on the seawall and like, starting to hear the voices in my head, hearing these, this couple fighting. And I felt like there was something there. So that was like, for me, the beginning of that play. And with the Amaryllis, it was a little different. It was, I usually don't, unless I'm writing for young people, I don't usually go after an issue. Like when you're writing for a theater for a young audience, often, you know, when talking to the artistic director or the person commissioning the play, it's like, what do you want to focus on it? It could be maybe bullying or eating disorders. And then it's about finding a unique way to tell a real story, right? So you're not just writing about an issue. But for my other work, it's more like it is a feeling of like something kind of coming to me. And with, um, with the Amaryllis, I kind of had this vision of this guy like bringing this pot of dirt on stage and there was nothing in it. And then the feeling that something was going to grow. So that was like an image that came. And I started, I wanted to write a two-hander again. I really like, I like that tightness of having just two people and a play that moves like quite quickly in time. Um, and I, I figured these people were brother and sister. And so I wrote a couple exploratory scenes and they seemed very strange to me. And then at the same time, Iris Turcott out at the factory, who was a wonderful dramaturg, called me and said, is there anything you're working on? And I had sent her something that was more put together. And I could tell like it wasn't really doing it for her. She said, is there anything that you're working on that's kind of like, like in the mud or like you're not sure about, but feels kind of deep to you? I said, well, I've got this weird thing about a flower that hasn't bloomed. And I, I don't know, I think it's about a brother and sister. And it's kind of dark and it's kind of funny. And I sent her some pages and she said, this is the one you should be working on. And so, the, again, I had that encouragement to explore it. So I don't know if that answers your question about, like, where my ideas come from. But. Well, it, do, it does in that um, I think uh, quite often people go, I've had lots of people come to me with ideas about what they want to write a play about, but sometimes mm -hmm. it's it uh, feels to me like it's um, a, con a construct that's yes, not yes. about something that's yeah. coming from the heart or the yeah. experience or the listening that they've... Uh, uh, been involved in. So yeah. it's always uh, interesting to talk to people who talk about the language coming through them or the story coming through them. Yeah. Which is, I think, kind of what you're suggesting is that yeah. you didn't sit down and go, okay, I'm going to write a play about a relationship between a brother and a sister. Yeah. And I didn't Google and go, what should I write about? Right. And try to figure out what the issue of the day is or anything like that, for sure. Yeah. But you're probably very attuned to current issues or things that are going on in the world. So well, they're, thought they're going through your mind filtering through your mind so at some point they present if if it's something that you want to connect with I would think absolutely and what you said like the way you said it it's like that you know your heart your experience your mind like I think as a writer it's a if you are a writer it, you're walking around the world in a particular way there's a particular filter that you're looking at the world through seeing hearing so like I said, I'm interested in psychology. I like to read voraciously. I, yeah, I pay attention to current issues, but also just how, just being in a dinner party conversation. But the play, The Call, that my husband and I, Mike St. John Smith, just wrote for the Arts Club, we were at a dinner party with some different folk who were getting into an argument about something. And on the way home, we were like, 
that could actually make an interesting play, right? And we didn't ultimately write about those people, but that feeling of having, you know, people with maybe different politics from kind of a wealthy group of people, suddenly that was very interesting to explore dramatically, right? And I think, too, I don't, I'm not an intellectual writer. And, like, you know, I, I used to feel like I wasn't smart enough to be an intellectual writer. Like, I didn't have a good enough education or, you know, I really did. And that was kind of, and that was a hindrance when I, a couple of plays I chose to write about, I've never actually succeeded because I think it came from the wrong place, which is I got to prove how smart I am. That is not a good place to write from because you're really in an argument with yourself, right? And and I've let that go. Um, I just have a particular voice and a way of seeing things. Um, well, I think most, uh, whether you're an intellectual, well, I suppose intellectual writers write from a totally different perspective. Yeah. They're writing from, uh, I, I'm not going to say that they're writing from an ego place, but they're actually writing from a place that actually filters some of the things that, what, that they are actually are writing about. I don't know if I'm saying that very clearly, but hmm. when I read an intellectual play or what is seen to be an intellectual play, I feel like the play is grounded in the... Um, the information and the dialogue gets constructed because of what the playwright intellectually wants to say as yes. opposed to what the playwright's heart wants to say. Yeah. And so I like it when, you know, when I'm seeing a great piece of theater, I like it when those two things kind of meet. Mix, yeah. Yeah. The mind and the heart. And, you know, in my, I like to use comedy to kind of open people's hearts so that some of the deeper things I want to talk about or explore can enter from that place. Because I I don't think people, well, I know people don't like to be lectured, and that's my least favorite kind of theater. <laughs> so, But sometimes we feel passionately about issues or ideas that we want to kind of get out there. It's just like, how do you enter? Where do you come from? For me, a particular example is um, when I wrote Poster Boys, one of the things that play was grounded in was a true event that happened where um, I was working in an ad agency and um, I helped create a campaign um, that was about equality at that time. So it fe featured a gay couple selling for Van City. They were selling Van City services, right? And But the Catholic Church pulled their funding to the children's banking program because of this ad at that time. It seems like ancient history, but that did happen. So I was curious to write about that incident, but more I was actually um, exploring the character of the artistic or the creative director. Was I wanted to write a female protagonist. But to my point, I I didn't want it to be a Catholic bashing play. I didn't, only because I felt like lots of those have been done and done better than I could possibly do it. But But I did want to have that kind of like, you know, that frustration with what the church had done. So I made one of the main characters a gay Catholic. So he was having the internal struggle of a, a love for his faith and also, you know, a frustration with what was happening in his life and then his partner was coming at him about it. So that for me made it more coming from a psychological heart place if you know what I'm saying yeah I, I do actually because I think when we I'll just go roll back to that intellectual sure. play comment I think uh, what then happens is the actor actually puts the heart into the piece sometimes yeah. and they, ha they that's definitely their skill. yeah um, but uh, the construction I mean what a playwright is really doing I, I think a good playwright is really doing is creating the a very strong scaffolding for the actor to be able to 
take off and, yeah. and create, finish the house, if you will. Yeah. yeah. And I, I tend to think that for me, I feel like there's this emotional engine. So I'm really attracted to actors who can, like I worked with Susan McFarlane a lot in the beginning, and she has this ability to stay grounded and real, so you believe her, but emotionally she's, she'll go anywhere. And she also, I've, Amy was just saying this to me, and she, apparently Susan feels the same way. They said, my plays are hard to memorize because the characters tend to go on about one thing, switch over to something else, and come back, which is kind of a pattern I think people actually have in them. We do, we do tend to jump around. We're not all completely articulate all the time so it takes a bit for the actor to connect to that rhythm but then once they do they're fine like they they memorize their lines but what I love is when they've got I can sense with an actor when they've got that engine of the play and then that kind of beating heart is in them and it's great to watch it go from there I think that's very true I mean you, you're the place that I've read of yours or seen of yours the conversation the 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 dialogue seems to rest very well in how people speak or how mm -hmm. people speak in this world that we're mm -hmm. in uh western the western world or certainly in canada mm -hmm. so that 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 seems to me that you're listening and your skill one of your wonderful skills as a playwright is that you actually hear how people talk yeah i hope so and thank you and also i'm listening for what people aren't saying and what is driving them underneath the words, which, you know, is sort of theater, you know, drama 101, but it's very interesting and exciting. And one of my challenges I set for myself with the Amaryllis was, it, it, you know, we've sort of said it's a bit of a mystery, like there's something for the audience to figure out as they watch it. And I really wanted to see how much can I not say in this piece and let it also be there. And, and, and it's working quite well, I think, right now. Uh, I'm thinking about the rehearsals we're doing, but um, yeah, it was fun to write that, and it taught me a lot. Well, it, 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 I don't know why this made me flash back to something that was said. I've been watching, uh, and as I think a lot of people have been watching the results of the U.S. election. Yeah. And David Frum said something, um, and uh, he he tends to be more on the right than on the left, but he said something. He said, "If we could turn off the the sound on uh, President Trump." and watch his body language, we would know actually that this man is really very frightened. Mm. Uh, and Interesting, so, that's great. Uh, and, and, and doesn't know where to go next. Yeah. So, he ha so I am curious also about when you say that you try not to um, over, well, I think what you were saying is overwrite. Yes. Uh, um, is how much uh, you allow the body language of the actor to tell your story. Do you think about that? A lot. Yeah. Yeah, so that it's such a good question because one of the things what what happens to me when I'm actually writing is I start to feel the character in my own body. So somebody like Lucy, this character in the Amaryllis, she's very kind of she she changes course a lot and she she kind of lives in the air a little bit as I see it and stuff. So I can kind of feel that when I'm when I'm writing and oftentimes the actor somehow gets that from the writing. So that rhythm or something must be must be in there. As a writer, one of the challenges is often, like I'll put a lot of stuff in my stage directions that are very important to me. One, for example, like in Sexy Laundry, the wife might be saying something quite reasonable and nice, but at the same time, she's, she's making a bed and pushing her husband away. So, that action she's taking is that's the truth. 
right? She's saying, no, I'm here to be with you. I really want to be with you. But at the same time, she's making a bed and pushing her husband away, making a bed they're supposed to be getting into. So it's hard sometimes as a writer because you do know like directors sometimes go, oh, just ignore the stage directions. But I would say read the stage directions and find if there's anything really true about the character in there. And if it's really like you just want to put the window on the other side of the set or something, that's fine. But a lot of times there's information there you know, from the writer. <laughs> Is there something from the Amaryllis that you'd like to share with us that, you're, that, that replicates what you've just said? Yes, the actual Amaryllis is a very important part of this play. So we've talked a lot about, for me, the proximity of the actors to the Amaryllis at different times in the play matters. So at one point we were talking about having a scene far away from the Amaryllis. And as we worked through it, we realized we need the amaryllis to be right there between them because the amaryllis itself has a presence in this play. And what they're talking about, they can't quite get to unless they have the help of this flower. It all sounds kind of airy-fairy, but it's really important. And it worked better when we moved it over near the amaryllis, right? So, yeah, for me, there's things like that all the time. They should be standing instead of sitting, you know. But a good director is simpatico with that, right? And, you know, it's great to work with Mindy and it's it's good to work with someone if they don't see it right away and you say something as a playwright, everybody's on the page of like, we're just trying to make this good. So we'll go, yeah, let's try that. Yeah, it's a very different kind of, um, uh, when I first started uh, doing my training, there was a lot of uh, uh, challenges around how one directs and uh, it was very prescriptive for mm -hmm. a long time. You do this at this point and you have to do that. And I think there's been a real change in how people approach scripts now, uh, or I hope there has, so that you're actually in a discovery, you're, you're in a discovery process as you're in the rehearsal, you're, uh, you're digging to find what's there, but it's not about, okay, you have to make this move at this point. I mean, that exists very much in musical theater, obviously, sure. for obvious reasons. Yeah. But, but I think, um, um, when in watching Mindy's work, she's very much uh, let's mine what's here yeah. and allow the director, uh, pardon me, the, the actors and the playwright to also be part of this family, especially for a new production. Yeah, and that's how we're working, and it's really great. And I think it's important. And why not like talk to the playwright because they're the person that wrote the play, right? Now, do you think women write different than men? Do you think women's plays are different than men's plays in structure or in what they want to take on? Well, I think there was kind of a dismissive way of talking about women's work, and even calling it women's work, as if the things that, that women say in general chose to write about were somehow less important than what men chose to write about, right? And just that idea is so wrong <laughs> and sexist, right? So I think... I mean, women can women write political plays, but maybe they come at them from a different perspective, being a woman in our culture, right? So, I don't. I wouldn't want to say across the board that women write different plays than men, but experientially, I think they do, and thank God, and we need more. <laughs> uh, does that affect structure? Do you think there are perfect plays? Is there such a thing as a perfect play? Well, is I'll tell you something. I've come to respect structure in a way more as I get older and I think I think it behooves us all to learn about structure and I because I do see a lot of plays that don't 
have it and need it. And editing, too. I think for young writers, it's like, you know, nobody is going to care about your work as much as you do. So you're the one that has to do that fine-tooth combing, surgical kind of remove what's not there. And then hopefully you'll have somebody else to help you with that, too. But what's great about a play can get lost in, frankly, just, you know, overwriting, I think, over-explaining and stuff. And then I found to tell a story like it's important to have a good structure and to understand what what that is for your particular piece. It doesn't have to be like a linear thing or a certain kind of thing, but it has to have something, that backbone that you hang the story on. That's my feeling about it. I've had people say to me too, like, there's a lot going on here. And I really like that. Like, I take that as a compliment because I like things to be layered. And I think women, I mean, this again is a generalization, but we have a fantastic ability to keep a lot of balls in the air. We're kind of, it's kind of in our DNA to be like, you know, the, the, the mother and the worker and the friend and like lots of things happening in our lives, different compartments. And I, I think that exists, like that can exist where there's, I'm using my hands here on a podcast, but <laughs> where it's very layered, like, and then that all becomes part of the same thing, the story. And people have said to me, Actors, directors, you know, I read your play. I thought it was quite a simple little play, right? And, and then we start getting into rehearsal, and it's like, oh, there's quite a bit here. There's a lot of work to do. And I like that because I like that on, it seems simple on the surface, but it's not, just like people. Well, I, simple doesn't mean that it's not layered. Simple exactly. <laughs> and, and simple and layered is harder to do, yeah. right? Because yeah. it takes more... It just takes more sculpting and editing and, yeah. Well, you can write, yes. I think you have written a, a, a simple a, a simple play, in, but it has all the layers and it has a depth to it that um, I think is the exciting part of the mystery. Is like you, you, you discover the depth of it as you go through it, and I think that's what people will see when they come, to, to a, when they come out to attend it, yeah. is that, hey, it may be simple storyline maybe but then all of a sudden there's all this undercover under mm -hmm. stuff under underpinnings of it so that'll be great hopefully <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do you think people will come back to the theater after covid i do why because i think we want to be with each other i think there's an energy that happens when you're in a room with other people and i think we're going to want that more than ever so i do I know we certainly are hearing it from the um, performances and things that we've been doing. I mean, we've been doing some work since the beginning of July and having small audiences. And every every show that I'm at, people come up and thank me mm -hmm. and say how much they are craving to be in the theater with with people that they don't know, um, uh, watching something that they don't know where they're going to go, uh, where where it's going to go to, and how 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 that always enriches their life but i also feel that there are a lot there's a lot of fear out there about getting together in groups because we're hearing all yeah. of this um so if you had to tell audiences as to why they should come out to the theater rather than wait to see if we podcast it or do something with it what would you say to them i would say that it is possible to gather and to be safe and that the fire hall has done an excellent job of making sure this is going to be a safe place. 
I would say that everybody has to make up their own mind about what they're comfortable with. But I, I would say this is in service of your mental and spiritual health, is to come out and to be with other people and to, you know, experiencing a new world, which is this new play, so that you have that and then you can go home and be back in your bubble and, you know, it'll get you through the next month or so. And then you can take yourself out to see something else. You know, they've said, uh, you know, weigh the risk, manage the risk so that you can do some things. And this is a worthwhile thing to do. The, uh, was, there was a study I just read yesterday that's been released out of Bonn, Germany, a study done by the univers- one of the universities there that... Um, uh, live performance uh, venues are one of the safest places to go to because yeah. uh, there's little risk because everyone within them is working so hard to ensure that people are safe when they're on the on the premises. So I'm hoping that, of course, that we will be able to keep everybody safe. We've certainly been working at doing that and that mm-hmm. people will... Uh, it's not... I wouldn't say... I guess it is a risk in people's minds, uh, but to not stop themselves from th- coming if they feel comfortable. I would say, come on down, check it out. The play is worth it. Uh, <laughs> and this experience will be worth it because within the play, we also touch on isolation. Yes. Um, and uh, and we touch on courage. And it takes a bit of courage right now to live your life, you know? And yeah. Rather than sitting back and watching uh, a long time series on Netflix or something. Not we, that we people shouldn't no, do that. No, it's great. As well. I mean, we're all, but <laughs> gosh, we're running out. <laughs> we just watched eight seasons of Game of Thrones in like, I don't know, two months. <laughs> well, someone was telling me that they're now addicted to West Wing because they find that presidential, that, that president pres- mu- that's much easier more. to take. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so I'm going to ask you um, how would you describe a dramatic pause? What's a dramatic pause to you? Well, first of all, I think that is the best name for a podcast, Dramatic Pause, because that's what this is. And um, But the word pause actually actually is meaningful to me because I have this uh, philosophy I live by, which is to pause when agitated. And which, what that means to me is that when I'm feeling kind of off the beam, is just to sit back, take a breath, and collect myself, and try to connect with what's really going on inside. Um, and then move from a place of integrity, wanting to do, you know, the next right thing or speak in a way that, you know, maybe if I hadn't paused would be not so considered. Um, And I feel like what happened with the pandemic is that we were all afforded the opportunity to do that in a sense, to sit, just to step back, sit back and take stock. And it certainly was dramatic given given the circumstances, but, but the pausing itself, I think, is a good thing. And at any given time for us, like individually or collectively, to take a breath and think about what's next, I think the world needs more of that in general. <laughs> I, I would totally agree with you. Uh, I, I wonder, uh, if you don't mind my asking, yeah. when you learned that. I think it's been a process of trial and error. <laughs> <laughs> through my life and getting myself in trouble sometimes and putting my foot in it. But I have a practice of meditation that I've had for at least 25 years now, and it's an ongoing journey process for me. So I've been learning it over the last 25 years. It's, it's, it's helped me, held me in good stead. 
We just had a wonderful discussion here last night with elders from uh, various First Nations um, uh, communities, and one of them said very, uh, an elder said very wisely that we need to stop mm -hmm. and listen. Yeah. And, yeah. and once we listen, we'll be, uh, it, we'll be told where we should go next or what we should do next. Yeah. And he said it much more eloquently than that. Yeah. But it is so important. And I, I, I have to say that I'm certainly hoping that people have, have learned this from uh, COVID, from the pandemic. When we all shut down, when everything shut down, yeah. there was a cleanness in the air. There was a, a cleanness in the, the sound around us. There wasn't a lot of noise. And mm -hmm. I think it did push people towards, okay, reconsidering how they live their lives. And I think when we come out of it, perhaps we'll see a different way of living. Yeah. Uh, we may not because we tend to forget things really quickly. Yeah, but. and it gets, it gets noisy really quickly yeah. too. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's true. And in, it's in the pausing that you can listen. You can hear yourself, you can hear the world, you can hear nature, it's like, but you do have to stop to be able to hear. That's so true. Mm. I have one more question sure. for you, and then we're gonna probably wrap it up. If you didn't have to write a grant application <laughs> and someone gave you whatever money you uh, might need, what would you do? To write? Well, to do whatever. If, so, if I said to you, okay, Michelle. Money, you, want, you can do whatever you want? Yeah, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. Honestly, I, I asked myself this question a long time ago when I was playwriting and I thought, oh, like, am I going to be able to pay the rent? Am I going to? And I realized I was always going to write whether I could pay the rent or not. I was going to find a way because that's what I feel like I'm meant to do. If I had all the money in the world, truthfully, I would like to write about the downtown east side. And I'd like to take the time to do the research, to understand it better. I've thought about ideas like even doing a musical, something large, but to bring attention to the problems here but also the humanity here and um, but the reason I link that to like having the money is I think it's a big project and it would need to be a project in partnership with a community and other artists and yeah so that would be my big sort of dream that's an exciting idea project. I mean I think yeah. there's a it's a very such, it's a, such a very complex community having worked here for so long yeah. I keep wanting to put uh, put it into some kind of dramatic piece and yeah. then you start to discover how complex it is so you're absolutely right yeah uh, it looks from the outside like oh if we just did this that would solve the problem yeah uh, no I, and I don't think you could come at it from a if we did this we could yeah. solve the problem because I don't think that would be the right mindset well no yeah. I think it's about mining we've been talking about this in terms You've of got to explore it yeah the yeah. discussions that we've been having with the um uh, indigenous communities over in the beginning is really what we're trying to do is un, um, uncover all the stories that have been buried yeah. and to take that uh, and put it in the context of what you've just said I think there are so many stories that are buried here that have been buried for various reasons that need to be uh, would need to be unearthed um, and it would be a huge a huge project that's not to say it shouldn't be taken no, on and no. not that others haven't tried in various yeah. ways but yeah it's not uh, uh i when i say solve the problem that's kind of how it's discussed in media yeah and, oh, but at least talk about the yeah. problem and put shine a light on what's the humanity and all the stories that are down here the community too right and there are thousands and thousands of stories of down course. here. What is yeah. it that what is that old saying in the naked city? Yeah. But there are many, many of them down here. Yeah. Um, so if you had one last thing to say on this podcast, uh. what would it be? Because you're going to have one last thing to right. say. 
Well, I would say thank you, Donna, for keeping the faith, for doing this, for like keeping the fire hall open, for finding a way to make theater, for having the courage to do that, and uh, for giving us this opportunity. I'm really grateful. And uh, yeah, so I would say thank you. Well, you're very welcome. <laughs> and I have to say, uh, I went through a little period there where I went, okay, what's going to happen next? And I went, well, I have to do what I've always done. I yeah. just have to keep the venue open we have to keep telling stories yeah we need stories in our lives we and do. we are uh, uh, important players in the story makers uh, world uh, playwrights actors directors we're all storytellers and yeah. it's just a different form every time we do a play so thanks very much everybody uh, dramatic pause is made possible through the support of the Canada Council for the Arts Department of Canadian Heritage BC Arts Council and the City of Vancouver and Fire Hall's many individual donors and supporters and all of the artists and creative teams we work with and one last advert uh, the Amaryllis opens on previews on uh, November the 12th and runs until November 22nd here at the Fire Hall Arts Centre. Thanks so much. Have a good day. Dramatic Pause is recorded at the Fire Hall Arts Centre in downtown Eastside, Vancouver. It is presented by our artistic producer Donna Spencer and produced by technical director Alastair Wallace. The Fire Hall Arts Centre has been producing and presenting Canadian theatre and dance since 1982, and we couldn't do this without the help of our generous sponsors, benefactors and patrons. If you'd like to support Canadian theatre and artists by becoming a donor, you can visit our website www.firehallartscentre.ca. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those held by the Firehall Arts Centre, its employees or its supporting bodies. Thank you.